But we are going to continue our series here on Hope is Alive. And what we've been doing is we're walking through the Gospel of John and the very last moments of Jesus' life leading to the cross and then to the resurrection. So last week we were able to look at John chapter 18 with Pastor Rod and it showed how Jesus was betrayed and arrested. And then this week we're going to look at Jesus' final moments as it led up to the cross and his death on behalf of his people. And then next week, we'll be moving into John chapter 20, where we see the glorious hope of the resurrection. And the good news is this, our hope is alive. Uh, We don't put our hope in something that is um, not living, something that is dead, something that is passe, but we put our hope in the living Christ who lived the life we should have lived, who died the death we should have died, and rose victoriously on our behalf. So we're going to jump in here to John chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to follow along with me. And uh, let's just ask the Lord's help one more time here. Lord Jesus, um, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Father, we praise you that you have given us your spirit. And even in this unusual time, Lord, you are with your people. You meet with your people. Help us to be reminded that the church is not a building. Uh, Lord, although we long to be together, we long to gather together, uh, your spirit is still with us, Christ is still at work, and you still love your people. So I pray through your word this morning that you would encourage us to see that we have hope, and it's in a person, and he's alive. Lord, would you help us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the summer of 1940, during World War II, England faced one of its darkest days. The Germans had already rolled through Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, and even France, and it seemed like the invasion of the United Kingdom itself was imminent. It was at this moment when the newly minted Prime Minister Winston Churchill uttered his famous words, If the British Empire lasts 1,000 years, men will say, This was their finest hour. In other words, Churchill saw this terrible circumstance as an opportunity for the British people to rise up, to show that this dark day actually could be their finest hour. And in one sense, that is the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Sorry, once again, here we go. There we go. In a sense, this is a story of Jesus' death. For although the crucifixion was certainly humanity's darkest day, it was also Christ's finest hour. Without question, the crucifixion was an indictment on humanity. We crucified, as the Bible said, the Lord of life. And yet while suspended between heaven and earth on that cruel instrument of death, the glory of Jesus shined brightly. It was indeed his finest hour. in fact, in fact, the cross simultaneously condemns our sin and exalts our Savior. Yes, the cross was cruel. It was awful. And it was an indictment on humanity at a whole. But at the same time, it exalted Jesus in a unique and glorious way. What a beautiful paradox. So why was the death of Jesus his finest hour? It's that question I'd like us to think about in the next few minutes together. And I'd like to give you just a few reasons why the death of Jesus was his finest moments. 
and I'm having technical difficulties here. Okay. First of all, Christ's death was his finest hour because it was a kingly death. John chapter 19 begins with Jesus in the custody of the Roman governor Pilate. We heard about that last week in John chapter 18. What is noteworthy about this interaction between Pilate and the others surrounding there during these final hours of Jesus' death is that time and time again, Jesus is referred to by the exact same title. After the soldiers beat him, we are told this. It says this in the passage. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And were slapping his face. So there Jesus is being beaten and they keep on calling him King of the Jews. And then to accentuate their insult, they dress him in a purple robe and put a crown of thorns on his head. Then later, after seeking to mollify the bloodthirsty crowd, Pilate brings Jesus to the place of judgment and again says something similar. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. And they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? Then finally, we read, Pilate resigned himself, allowing Jesus to be crucified. And he says this. Pilate also had a sign made and put it on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. So as John writes about the final moments leading up to Christ's death, he repeatedly reminds us that Jesus is king. So, so why this emphasis? Why does John want to make it so evident that Jesus is referred to as the king? I think a couple of things are going on here. The first thing is simply this. Let's be honest. At this point in the story, at this point in Jesus's life, he doesn't seem like a king at all. He's been betrayed, abandoned, arrested, beaten, ridiculed. Maybe John repeatedly tells us that Jesus is king because right at this moment, Jesus doesn't look very kingly. And it's one of the beautiful ironies of the crucifixion. Jesus may not have been the king we expected, but he was the king we needed. Jesus didn't look like a king at this point. I think that's John's point. No, Jesus, he, he was beaten, he was ridiculed, he was arrested, he was in custody. He didn't seem like the king everybody expected. But the mockery and the sarcasm, the beating and the torture, the imprisonment and the arrest, it didn't change the reality. Jesus still was the king. And despite all appearances to the contrary, Jesus is the very king that we needed. Think about it for a moment. A major portion of the role of a king is what? It's to protect the people they serve. In fact, in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel repeatedly cried out for a king, they understood this reality. Here's what it says in the book of 1 Samuel. We must have a king over us. Our king will go out before us and fight our battles. So why did the Old Testament people want a king? They wanted a king who would fight for them. And friends, isn't this exactly what Jesus was doing? Our king, though he didn't look kingly at that moment, 
was riding out in front of his people to face the enemies they could not beat themselves. He was going to the cross as our king, as our protector, to face down sin and death and the devil himself on our behalf. Here's the reality. On the cross, King Jesus won the battle for us that we could not win ourselves. And that's why it was his finest hour. Because at the head of his army, out in front of his people, Jesus rode to face down our greatest enemies. He faced sin. He faced death. He faced the devil himself, and he won the battle. Christ's finest hour, he didn't look like the king. He wasn't the king we expected, but he was the king that we needed. But there's another reason why the crucifixion was Jesus' finest hour. His death was not only kingly, it was also planned. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, as you read the account of Jesus' death in John chapter 19, another feature becomes clear. I want you to follow along with me and look carefully at the text if you have your Bibles with you. Look at verse 23 in particular, where it says this. When they came to Jesus, oops, back up one more, there we go. The soldiers took his clothes and divided them into four parts. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see who gets it. Now notice this phrase right here. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. So you notice here in John 19, verse 23, and following that Jesus is dying in the way that he is so that the scripture might be fulfilled. And this is not an isolated instance. Skip down again to verse number 33. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they thought that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. For these things happen, look again, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one on whom they have pierced. So why does John make it clear that Jesus' death was the fulfillment of centuries-old prophecies? I think the answer is that John wants us to understand simply this. The cross was never plan B. Jesus was not caught off guard by the arrest or betrayal of Judas. He was not making the best of a bad situation. Jesus laying down his life had always been part of God's plan for his people. Christ actually makes this even more emphatic in the way his actual death occurred. Verse number 30. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So look at this. It doesn't say that Jesus' life was taken from him. It simply says that he gave it up. Or as it says earlier in John's gospel. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. The point is simply this. Christ was not the hapless victim of the cross, 
but the brilliant mind behind it. And as we will see, this plan was breathtakingly spectacular, which leads to the third thing that makes Jesus' death his finest hour. It was a complete death. Well, maybe you hear this and think, is there really any other kind of death? I mean, when somebody dies, isn't it always complete? Well, this is not a nod to you Princess Bride fans out there about mostly dead. But what I mean by this is that through his death, Jesus accomplished everything that he set out to do. Look again at verse number 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And there's a very key distinction in these words, namely this. Jesus did not say, I am finished, but it is finished. In other words, through his death, Jesus finished the work that he came to do. And what was this work? Why? What did Jesus came to do? Earlier in his gospel, John tells us very emphatically in one of the most common passages in all of the Bible, it says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. On the cross, Jesus did all that was necessary to save his people. That's what Jesus came to do. And when he said, it is finished, he meant he had finished the work of rescuing his people from their sins. And this is incredibly good news because it means you don't need to contribute to your salvation or show yourself worthy or be baptized, or take communion, or perform some other religious ritual. You simply need to trust that Jesus' work is enough. Why? Because it is finished. The crucifixion was Jesus' finest hour because on the cross, Jesus declared himself to be our Savior. So how should we respond to this glorious, finished, complete death of Jesus? Let me offer you just a couple of ways this morning. The first thing that this calls us to do is simply this. It calls us to trust. The whole point of John's gospel is this truth. Like John wrote his gospel and really the whole Bible is written for the sake that we would trust in the work of Christ on our behalf. Here's what it says at the very end of John's gospel over in John chapter 21. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. God wants you to trust in Jesus. Jesus went to the cross to save sinners like you and me. And when we simply put our faith in Christ, we have life. That is why he came, that we may believe in him. And as a result of believing, we would have life. And friends, if you look at the cross and you don't put your trust in Jesus, then you've missed the whole point of the story. The cross is about putting our faith in Jesus' finished work on our behalf. Jesus died not as a martyr primarily or an example 
primarily. Jesus died to be our Savior. So would you simply trust in Him? Trust that His death on the cross saves us. The cross also calls us to do something else. Not only does it call us to trust, it also calls us to rest. You see, by laying down His life on us for the cross, Jesus demonstrated His wholehearted commitment to His people. After all, what what more could Jesus do to prove that he loved us? The cross was a dark day, but it showed the greatness of Christ. For in dying on the cross, Jesus did this. The crucifixion declares that God is on your side. And in these uncertain times, this is good news. Listen to me, friends. God is for you. He is with you. He loves you. So if you've trusted in Jesus, rest. Your greatest enemies have been dealt with. Your worst enemy is not the coronavirus. It's bad and we should take precautions and we should be safe. But your greatest enemies is sin and death and the hell. And Jesus went out and conquered those on our behalf. There may be a great deal of uncertainty in this life and right now at this time. But rest assured, if you have trusted in Jesus, there is one thing that is absolutely certain. God is for you. Rest, rest, because Jesus died on the cross to demonstrate that God is on your side. And finally, one more thing. The cross compels us to share. Look, listen very carefully to this statement. Jesus died to take away your sin. Let me say it again. Jesus died to take away your sin. That's the greatest news in the world. And because of this, it it demands our proclamation. We can't say that the gospel, the work of Jesus on behalf of sinners, is good news and then sit on a hat. We, We can't bury it under a bushel, as the Bible says. But we have to let that light shine. Now, I certainly understand that in this strange time that we're living in, that sharing our faith has become uniquely challenging. I don't have any question about that. We're isolated. We're distanced from people. But in spite of this, although this season certainly presents some challenges, it also presents some unique opportunities. With this pandemic, people are faced with their own mortality. They're afraid. They have some isolation time. They're starting to ask some serious questions about life. So as believers, we have hope in Jesus and the best news in the world. So how can we leverage this time For the sake of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I'm sure some of you have some great ideas about how you can share your faith during this time. But let me offer just one strategy. I'd like us as a church, many of us from Gospel Hope, to do a couple things in order to share the gospel. I'd like many of us to use these ideas right here. Would you create a short one to two minute video, very brief, Telling your story of how Jesus changed your life. If you need some suggestions about best practices or how to do that or how to take selfies or whatever, if you need that, we're going to link an article right now in the comment section where you can go to and it's under Jesus Changed Your Life and it can give you some practical suggestions about how to do that. After you record that, would you share that video? Share it on social media with 
all of your friends and link to the hashtag Jesus Changed My Life. What that would do is it would connect people with not just your story, but dozens and dozens of other stories of how people have come and to see their life be changed by Jesus. Then also link it to the Gospel Hope Church uh, social media handle, whatever media form you're using, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or whatever you're doing, link it to Gospel Hope. So that those people are not only attached to Jesus and his saving work, but also, also to a group of local believers who will want to engage with them and the gospel. And then thirdly, pray. Maybe the Lord would use this to help us see more people come to Easter than even in our Easter services as we kind of exponentially spread the net through our social media handles so that we can see people knowing about how Jesus changed your life. Friends, let's be people who are about the death of Jesus. And we recognize, we recognize that it was a kingly death, it was a planned death, and it was a complete death. And because of that, we should trust in his work on our behalf, we should rest in his work on our behalf, and we should share his work on, on our behalf to anyone and everyone who would listen. Can we pray together? Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. And I pray that you would help us to see the death of Jesus as, yes, a dark day, but it was indeed Christ's finest hour. I pray we would revel in that fact. In Christ we pray. Amen. In a few minutes, uh, we're going to have some time for some questions and answers as we have the last couple weeks. So uh, if you want to write those down in the comment section right now, I have a couple people here who are going to be feeding those to me. Um, but a few things as you're writing those down just to be aware of. If you want to give to Gospel Hope Church, we continue to try to serve and minister during this time. And if you have been like, oh man, I forgot to give. We're going to link our giving link right down below in the comments. And you can click on there so that you can give online. If you've yet to set up an online giving account, we'd be happy to help you with that. You can just email us at admin at gospelhopechurch.com. And we'd love to help you with that if you need some assistance. Also, if you've yet to connect to one of our virtual community groups and you want to get plugged in with some other believers during this time, hey, would you comment below or again, email us at admin at gospelhopechurch.com. We'd love to help you with that. Now, one of our big burdens during this time is that we would help believers connect with one another. So whether you're a member of the Gospel Hope Church family or you're just connecting with us, we'd love to serve you in some way and have some live interaction with other believers during this difficult and unique season in our lives. Um, next week, as you know, we're leading up to Easter. And obviously, as we've talked about, we're not going to be able to gather in person. But we are going to do our best to do some special things next week. And we'd love for you to try to invite your friends. So first of all, use that Jesus Changed My Life video suggestion and try to broadcast that to other people. And then also be watching throughout the week. We'll be having some ways that you can invite people into the Gospel Hope virtual Easter services next week. And then finally, those of you who are members of Gospel Hope Church, we're going to have a members meeting on the 19th. That's the week after Easter. And so we're going to do it on Google Hangouts Meets. So be looking for information about that. That'll give you an opportunity to interact with your pastors. Rod and I have some things that we would love to share with our church body. So please stay tuned for that and look for more information regarding. Hey, we're so happy to be with you again today in this format. We're grateful for it. It, it creates a longing for us to be back together. But it's this real gift from God that we're able to do this during this season. 
that is very unique and unusual. So I'm going to take a few questions now. So Lord willing, we have some from the peanut gallery. Can the meeting still be catered? Can the meeting still be catered? Absolutely. You can um, order food and have it delivered to your house, and Gospel Hope will not pay for that. So, yes, it can be catered. That is certainly up to We're you. We're not cooking. Yeah. Nobody is cooking for you. That's a fantastic question. Very important. That was, yeah. Rick. That was Rick. Oh, thank you, Rick. Yeah, you're always a blessing, brother. Hey guys, I even gave some announcements to give you time to type. You can't be that slow. Here's typers. one. Could yeah. you could you lead us in a church prayer for our lost neighbors during this weird time? I'm curious what your prayer would be like. Okay. Yes. Who's that from? That is from Elizabeth Beck. Yes, certainly Elizabeth. Let me. Uh, let's do just that. Um, let's pause just for a minute and ask for the Lord's help. Um, Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we just ask for your help. Lord, we, we need to be filled with wisdom during this time. Just knowing how to reach out and minister to people in unusual ways is, is something we need your guidance about. So, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Um, help us to uh, embrace the reality that we have the mind of Christ. Help us to be saturated in your word and understand the times. Give us discernment and discretion to be able to know how to engage those around us. And Father, I pray for our neighbors right now. Um, Lord, I pray that their hearts would be sensitive to your word. I pray that they would be searching, that all of this uncertainty would lead them to be looking for hope. And I pray that we would be able to have conversations and engagement with them. Help us to use all the platforms that this wonderful technology that you've given us has enabled us to do and really be creative in sharing our faith as your word says help us to redeem the time and make the most of every single opportunity and lord i pray that we would be able to sow some gospel seeds that would fall on good ground i pray that um, the folks of gospel hope church would be known as good neighbors during this time mm -hmm. help us to know how to do that wisely and well in jesus name we pray amen mm -hmm. What are some practical ways you've been fixing your mind on Jesus? Yeah, great question. Um, I would say uh, for me, it's just been um, regularly trying to, even though this time is uh, unstructured as it usually is, um, really spending time with the Lord in prayer and going through my regular routine of devotions and prayer. Um, I, what I do every morning is, one is, I try to spend some time in the Word and just saturate my mind with God's Word. So if you don't have a regular time of reading God's Word, I would encourage you to use this to establish that discipline in your life. Next thing I do is I really try to pray. So first of all, uh, I pray for my own heart and ask God to really grip me with Him for that day and really kind of unburden myself to the Lord. And then I begin to pray for my family, for my community group, for our church, and, and other circles of people that I pray for. But really beginning to intercede for other people helps me to get my mind uh, focused on my role as really trying to be at the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And then finally what I try to do is just I journal. Um, it's helpful habit and practice for me to really um, focus my mind in on what the Lord does. Then throughout the day, um, what Trisha and I have been doing is... Um, 
we just are trying to spend time at, in various platform with, with our kids, trying to intentionally disciple them, whether that's family devotions or breaking out with our boys or breaking out with our girls. But I would just encourage you to build some disciplines into your life that allow the word to be saturated in your life. So often uh, we, we try to do so much, but I would encourage you just start small and say, man, if, I, if I'm not getting the word in my life, maybe you need to pause at lunchtime and, and read the scriptures for a minute or something. But build in some regular habits of letting the word into your life. Um, how can I rest when I am really struggling with anxiety mm. at this time? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that's a common temptation that we're all facing in anxiety. I think the verse that always helps me is, is simply in 1 Peter where it says, Cast your cares on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. Um, so two realities there. First of all, I need to believe that God cares for me. Um, that, that's at the root of our anxiety because every time we worry, we're essentially saying, God you don't got this. I can't trust you. You don't care about me enough. There's a there's a heart that is mistrusting of the Lord's sovereignty and his wisdom and his love for us. So that's the first focus. God, you care for me. And then cast your cares on the Lord. Well, what does that mean? It means that I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to know the answers to that, but rather to say, God, this worry is ultimately not meant for my shoulders, but it's meant for yours. So I should do my due diligence, I should take precautions, I should be careful. But then at the end of the day, I should transfer that worry over to the Lord. So I would say maybe, maybe you need to do something even physical where you hold something in your hand and you say, you know what, Lord, at the end of the day, I'm not going to worry this, but I'm going to set this down. I'm going to cast this care upon you. I think that's something that we all have to do on a regular basis is fight, fight against anxiety. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to be concerned. It's not even wrong to have fears in our hearts. What's wrong is when we, what's sinful is when we allow fear to be greater than our faith. Uh, we have to allow our trust that God cares for us to trump our worry and our anxiety. How have you been, been seeing God move during this time? Yeah, um, let, let me share one story that was super encouraging. So as you have um, seen, Pastor Rod and I have been doing devotionals throughout the weeks. And this past week, we invited our missionaries to participate on that. And, I, and if you didn't get to catch up on those, I'd encourage you to kind of hear from some of our missionaries. Unfortunately, uh, we didn't get to hear from the barbers. Uh, they were scheduled for Thursday, but they don't have internet right now, so they couldn't get that over to us. But um, on Monday, um, Pastor Manuel Sanchez, or Tuesday, I'm sorry, Pastor Manuel Sanchez shared with us and what, what I was very encouraged by is that one of our one in our congregation, after seeing that video, gave financially to the Sanchez's. I mean, what a beautiful picture of the body of Christ and responding to needs. So that, that was terribly encouraging to us. I think another thing that Pastor Rodman and I have been talking about is, man, this season is certainly challenging, but it also has some unique opportunities. And it's caused us to kind of... Um, take off our traditional church hats and put on our creative thinking and really say, how can we be encouraging our church with some of the things that we're doing on an ongoing basis? So let me tell you, Rod and I have received dozens and dozens of texts as we have sought to reach out to our congregation, you guys reaching back out to us and say, how can we pray for you? 
man, as your pastors, we are deeply, deeply encouraged by that. That you folks not only are appreciating and receiving care for, for us, but you're really being great responsible siblings and seeking to care for us as well. Now, we want to be known. When we come out of this and on an ongoing basis, you know, we say it at Gospel Hope a lot. The church is not like a family. It is a family. We just want that to be tangible. When people come into our congregation, we want to be known as a group that, man, that, that group of people really treats one another like family. And we believe that can have some ongoing implications even out of this pandemic where people would gather with Gospel Hope Church and they'd be like, man, I feel like a brother or sister in this place. How can we be reminded that God is on our side and that he is for us when we are praying for what we believe to be good things, but God is not answering in the way we see as good? Mm, that's a great, great question. How do we respond when God doesn't give us what we think is good? Um, let, me, let me use an illustration that may be helpful in this. You know, I have a, a bunch of children, eight. And uh, let's suppose I sat down with my eight-year-old, Selah, and began to explain to her um, trigonometry. I don't think I could do it anymore, but there was a time where I was pretty good at math. And I explained it to her, and she said to me, Daddy, I don't get it. And the question I would ask is this, is the problem with the trigonometry, or is the problem with Selah's limited capacity? And I would say, she's not being sinful, she's just being eight, and her capacity, her mental ability is not at the point where she can grasp that yet. That's always been helpful for me when I pray to the Lord and he doesn't give me what I want. I have to realize that the problem is not with God or his unwillingness to love me or care for me, but it's in my limited capacity. He's God and I'm not. He's able to understand things that I don't understand and he has a sovereign and wise all-encompassing plan that that encompasses all of life that i just can't wrap my mind around so at the end of the day what we need to say is lord i'm presenting my request to you and i think these are good things but you're god and i'm not and i trust that if these aren't good you won't give it to me or as the bible says in matthew matthew's gospel when you ask for bread your father is not going to give you a stone so sometimes we think, we think we're asking for bread when we're really asking for a stone. And we need to have confidence that the Lord knows what is best for us. Again, it goes back to understanding the character of our God. He really does care for us. So rest in the reality that God knows best, God loves us, and God is in control. And when you put those three things together, it enables, to navigate, it enables us to navigate life's difficulties with faith, and confidence, and even a sense of peace, even when we don't get what we want. For those who struggle to see the urgency or importance of sharing the gospel with the lost, mm. how can they use this time to cultivate a heart for the lost? Yeah. Um, in one sense, um, sickness is a gift. Here's what I mean by that. Um, sickness reminds us that we're finite. And that we're mortal um, and, and so I, I think I would use you know the situation in the world that is heartbreaking and say oh man this is terrible it's sad that people are dying it's sad that people can't get the care that they need and we should grieve on that but we should grieve even more 
that people are dying on a far more fundamental level. They're dying spiritually. And this sickness, in one sense, is a parable of the greater suffering, of the greater sickness that is in our heart, that only the great physician can heal. So I would, I would encourage you to use this pandemic to point you up the beam, as C.S. Lewis says. Go up the beam and get to the real pandemic, and that's the pandemic of sin that doesn't affect one or two or three percent of the population and lead to death, but it, it infects a hundred percent of humanity. All of us have a worse disease than even COVID-19. So I would encourage you, if you're struggling with that, let this physical suffering allow you to meditate on the even greater spiritual suffering that people are experiencing. It's not that we make light of these in any way, but, but they're meant to be windows to help us to see that there's even greater realities going on. Um, the Bible tells us that we have a high priest who's mm. able to identify with our sufferings. Mm. Um, how, how do you think Jesus in his life identifies with our sufferings that we experience currently? Oh, yeah, great question. Um, you know, when Jesus went to Jerusalem, um, just prior to his death, he, he looked out and he saw the brokenness of the city. And what does the Bible say he does? He he wept, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen does her chicks and you would not come. So Jesus fully identifies with our suffering. Or even if you go over to the passage where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. This is so interesting to me. Jesus knowing full well that in a few moments he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. When he encounters Mary and Martha, what does he do? He weeps. He weeps. Even knowing that the outcome is going to be good. So part of Jesus' humanity is mean that he doesn't just view our lives from this eternal perspective. He also views it from a chronological perspective. Jesus was time-bound in one sense as a human being, and he entered into the brokenness and the sorrow of our world. So how is Jesus feeling right now? He's brokenhearted. He grieves for the sorrow and the suffering and the wrongness that is in the world right now. But at the same time, he doesn't do so without hope because he's also able to keep God's perspective. And I think that's why the Bible says that the Christian's emotional life should essentially be sorrowful. Why? Because the world is tragic. It's broken and yet always rejoicing because we know that in the end, hope wins. God wins. And even in our sorrow, he has a plan for this. So we need to strike that balance because I think the Lord strikes our, our balance. Jesus was a man who suffered incredibly, and yet he never lost hope. He never lost ultimate joy, rejoicing in the Father's will for his life. How can Christians respond to non-Christians who say, how is God good with everything that is happening right now? And along with that, how should Christians respond to other Christians who say things like, God is doing this for whatever reason, which may be true, but the response clearly lacks empathy towards non-believers. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that goes a little bit back to the question that I just answered with, I think the proper emotional note that Christians should be striking is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So we don't make light of human suffering in any way. And yet, as the Bible says in other places, we don't grieve like those who don't have hope. So there's an underpinning of hope in all that we do. So what is God doing in this? Well, there's some things that we do not know, but we do know certain things that God is doing because 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that we know that in all things God works together for the good, the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. So what is our good? Well, as you unpack Romans 8, and I encourage you to go back and study that, part of the good that God is accomplishing in our lives through suffering is making us more like his son, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so I don't know all that God's going to do. I see some unique maybe things that God is going to do. I think he's going to mobilize the church in some ways to go beyond the walls. I think he's going to raise up a wave of compassion in the church that, that gives us more urgency about our mission because people are dying. Uh, but I do know with 100% confidence that God is, what he is doing, is using this time to make us more like Christ. And don't you feel that? Don't you feel in your heart like a longing for Jesus more? Don't you feel like this unrightness, this uncertainty makes you long for more certainty in God? So don't neglect the role of suffering that it's meant to have in our lives to drive us to the Savior. Um, you came to Jesus, if you are a believer, because, because you knew there was lack in your life. And we still have lack in our lives as believers, and that's still meant to drive us to Jesus. So, um, Gospel Hope, let's be people who strike that balance between grief and hope that is proper for a Christian to have. So, I'd encourage you, if you're really struggling with that, you don't want to be glib on the one side, or you don't want to be hopeless on the other side, um, Really get into the life of Christ, really uh, meditate on Romans chapter 8, and see how those passages of scripture can encourage you to have that proper, I would say, sanctified emotional balance in your life. Right. Well, Gospel Hope, we're so grateful for you. If you have more questions about this, man, Pastor Rod and I are certainly available. We'd love to talk with you or chat with you online. Feel free to reach out with you to us. We love you. We're grateful for you. We hope you're encouraged by today. Uh, let's just pray real quick. Lord Jesus, we need you in this uncertain time. Thank you that we have certainty in the bedrock of Jesus' death on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.